Well, good morning. We turn to our uh, regularly scheduled programming back to this sermon series on the sovereignty of God. We never really left it. Last week, we talked about the sovereignty of God over death. Uh, And as you turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, today we're going to talk about sovereignty and evangelism. We'll get to that in a second. Let me read this text first. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel said to the Lord, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south, towards the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. And there's an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, a queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before his shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generations? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself? Or about someone else. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And they were going along the road, and they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his own way rejoicing. But Philip found himself as a Zotos, and he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. If God is sovereign, and by sovereignty, we've already defined it many times, but basically God is in the heavens and he does what pleases him, Psalm 115, that there's, there's nowhere that God does not have dominion, doesn't mean he orchestrates everything, we've talked about his secret and decretive will, we'll talk more about that, but if God is sovereign, and those who are going to become believers are going to become believers, then why do we need to evangelize? Why evangelize at all? What's the point? of evangelizing, if God is sovereign and he's going to draw men unto himself, whoever he wants to be his children, why do we evangelize? Now, for most of us, that is just an excuse to not do it. Most of us aren't really, really deeply biblically convicted that we shouldn't do it based on our theology. We just use that as a simple excuse. And if you are convicted that way, you only need one book to end it for you, to put the whole thing to bed, which is Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer. Read that one book by the second chapter. That, uh, that whole argument will have left you. Here's what Packer says. They, the disciples, did not need to be told to do this. They did it naturally and spontaneously. 
just as one would naturally and spontaneously share with one's family and friends or any other piece of news that, that vitally affected them, it was a great privilege for them to evangelize. It was a privilege, not a burden. They did it naturally, they did it spontaneously because it was great news. Just like you get uh, the thing from Clemson, you're now officially a tiger, and you immediately text your friends, I got in, I got in, and then you do the selfie, look, I got in, and then you tell your grandmother, I got in. You are naturally and spontaneously sharing good news that has affected you, and it is a privilege to do so, and you never think twice about it. That's how the disciples constantly evangelized. That's how the church grew. That's why you're sitting in Greenville, South Carolina, worshiping in 2021. Because that band of brothers and those band of sisters, they got together and they decided we are going to share this good news in the Great Commission and there's nothing that's going to stop us. Now, why don't we? A couple reasons. Number one, a lot of us don't evangelize because we say, well, Andy, I haven't been trained. Nobody's taught me how to do it. I haven't gone through a course. Well, first of all, we're going to solve that. We're going to have a course that will help you. But I also want to say that's absolute hogwash. Here's why. We're the most well-educated culture in the history of the world. You can get a thumb drive of every seminary class that you would ever want and plug into a computer. You can read hours and watch hours and hours and hours of YouTube videos on apologetics, on defending your faith if you want training. All of it's free. All of it is at your fingertips. So that's not an excuse. Here's another reason. A fear of uh, rejection or not wanting to come across as being holier than thou. And that one I get. That one lands a little bit more. I remember Tim Keller told me a story about he was uh, jogging, walking on a treadmill in his uh, apartment complex on Roosevelt Island, and uh, beside him was this Pakistani doctor, and they were starting to talk about religion. And halfway through, as they're walking on their treadmill early in the morning, the, the doctor finally stopped his treadmill and looked at Tim and said, wait, are you trying to proselytize me? And Tim looked at him and said, yeah. And uh, then they went on and had a conversation, and Tim said, look, here's the deal. Yeah, I'm trying to convert you, but you're also trying to convert me. You want me to adopt your worldview. I want you to adopt my worldview. Uh, we're, we're both trying to do the same thing together. So let's just have the honest conversation about it and not feel like we're trying to do this like hook and ladder kind of thing. Uh, I think that people, when I have talked to them about the faith, they love that type of honesty. Here's the third reason. Maybe you don't evangelize because you like your little club. You like things the way that they are. You like the people that you're around. You view church as kind of like a 10-year-old would view a treehouse club. Let's not let any girls in. You know, you got to have the secret password. And we just want our people that like our things. And if we start to bring other people in who don't maybe think the same way or look the same way or like the same things, that's going to throw everything for a wrench. Let other people do that. We like our club. Number four. You might not evangelize because you're actually not a believer. I just read an article that interviewed young atheists at Ivy League schools about why they don't follow Christ. Fascinating article. Here's a couple of the takeaways from Stephanie, who's a student at Northwestern, which is not Ivy League, but close. She said, I've understood from preaching over the years 
about social justice, about community involvement, about being good, but I seldom see a connection between the message and the relationship with Christ. The connection between Jesus and a person's life just has never been clear to me. Or take Michael, who's a political science major at Dartmouth, who said, I can't really consider a Christian a good moral person if he's not trying to convert me. Christianity is something that if you really believed it, it would change your life, and you would want to change the life of others. And I haven't seen much of that. Or let me, I'm, I'm throwing some haymakers here at the beginning of the sermon. Uh, so let me give you one more reason why you might not evangelize, because, and this is the hardest one, you actually don't love people. This one's going to hit. This is going to leave a mark, and I apologize for it, but preaching isn't always just to make you feel good. Uh, sometimes it's to convict through the Holy Spirit. Penn Gillette, I've read this quote before. He's an atheist. I don't think he's going to be atheist for long. I actually think, um, I think the Lord's working on him, but that's neither here nor there. He said, I don't respect people who don't try to proselytize me. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think it's not really worth telling them because it would make it too socially awkward, how much do you have to hate someone to believe that everlasting life is possible and choose not to tell them? I'm just going to let that sit for a second. How much do you have to hate somebody to know that there's everlasting life possible and decide, no, it might just be a little socially awkward. I'm, I'm not going to share. Somebody else will do it. Now, why should we do it? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one is this. It stokes your faith. I go to lunch with y'all all the time. Uh, and I never pray when I'm going to go to lunch with Mark or Jeff Henry or any number of you. I mean, I might throw up a Hail Mary prayer. You know, if I go to lunch with Trevor, I might say, God, help me to find a way to encourage him. You know, I might say something like that. Um, but when I go to lunch with a non-believer, which I do, I pray all morning long. God, give me the wisdom, help me to be joyous, help me to encourage them, help me to understand what their struggles are, what their world my Faith is stoked anytime I go into some kind of uh, evangelistic conversation. But if God is sovereign, why do this anyway? And here's the reason. Look, we know that God's going to bring his children unto him. We know that. But you get to be a part of the game. And it's a beautiful thing. You ever see those videos? They bring me to tears every time. When uh, at the end of one of the basketball games or the football games, the water boy or, uh, you know, the kid with cancer or uh, the young boy with special needs, they put him on the field and both teams decide together he's going to run down and break these tackles. And all of these big, strong football guys are falling down. And this kid carries it, you know, all the way down and goes into the, and everybody cheers. Look, you're gonna, Christ is going to win the game anyway. He's going to draw people to himself, but you get to be on the field. And you get to be a part of it. And you get to watch what God's doing, and you get to see lives changed. And the reason why some of our faith is so dry is because we're not even in the game. We're not even on the sideline. We're just looking at the box score in the newspaper the next day, trying to figure out who won. 
We're living in this engaged life where we live sensitive to the Spirit, which we're going to talk about in a second, sharing our faith spontaneously and naturally and joyously with other people stokes your life. It's how we change the world. You want to change the culture? It's how you change the culture. It's how you change how people think and were commanded to do it. So let me just walk through these two people. First of all, the Ethiopian, who's a curious seeker, and then Philip, who's an obedient follower. Be very short. First of all, Ethiopian, a curious seeker. Who was he? Look at verse 27. Well, he's a eunuch. Uh, that's commonplace in that day if you're in a higher level court so that you're not a threat to the queen that you're serving. Uh, often people would, would become a eunuch for that reason. He was in the court of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. He's in charge of all of the treasury. He's the chairman of the Fed for uh, the Ethiopians. He's of a very, very high class. He's probably extremely rich. He has his own chariot. And there is a long history of Ethiopians and Christians. You know, Moses married an Ethiopian. And Miriam and Aaron got furious with him. This is Numbers chapter 12. Uh, they were furious that he married. Solomon married an Ethiopian. You read about that in Solomon, Song of Songs chapter 6. Uh, God talks about the Ethiopians or the Cushites all the time. The Ethiopians rescued Jeremiah out of a pit in Jeremiah chapter 38. And here this Ethiopian is who's coming to Jerusalem to worship. Verse 27. He's curious. And here's what I want to say. There might not be a ton in the room this morning, but we always have a ton of people who are seeking and a lot of people who are watching who are seeking. It's quite okay to come to worship and not believe everything that we believe. It's okay for years even to come into this room and say, I'm, I'm not sure I believe this yet, but I, this is the place where y'all talk about things that matter. And so I'm going to I'm still going to come, and I've got my doubts, I've got my problems, I don't quite believe all this, but I'm going to come to worship. Here the Ethiopian was coming to worship. He's not even a believer, but he wanted to hear all the talk. What's all the hubbub about in Jerusalem? This is not a place for members only. And ironically, here the eunuch is going to Jerusalem, and he can't even go into the temple because Jewish law prevents eunuchs from going into the temple. So his question would have constantly been, do I belong at all? Do I belong to these people? Do I belong in this place? They won't even let me in their temple. And maybe if you're a seeker, if you're curious, that's what you're wondering as well. Do I belong at all? Maybe you look around, you hear the different political views, you hear the different musical tastes, you see the different skin color, the way people dress, the things people like, and you wonder, do I belong? And I would say if you're curious and if you're a seeker today, don't let that distract you. Whatever image you have about what a Christian is in your mind, confront that image and ask yourself more about Jesus than whether or not you belong. And we see the Ethiopian eunuch, he's reading Isaiah 53. If you remember last week, I talked about Isaiah 53 being the forbidden chapter for the Jews. They weren't allowed to read it because you could put the pieces together of this suffering servant who then was Christ who was crucified. So let's, let's not focus on that chapter too much because you might connect the dots that this was the Messiah. And apparently, they were still talking about it. Weeks and months later, because he comes from the temple, he would have heard all the discussion, all the teaching, and where he flops open his Bible is Isaiah 53. 
And so he would have been trying to ask himself this question, was this really the person or not? And he's reading it out loud, which is uh, neither here nor there. But just so you know, reading silently wasn't a commonplace thing until Augustine's time in 400 AD. Matter of fact, uh, they thought Augustine was mad for a while because he could read silently and retain the information. Imagine if you went to the Starbucks and this was still the practice. You could hear what everybody was reading. That would be wonderful. Uh, I would love to hear what other people are reading. Because you could say, do you understand what you're reading? And he's a seeker. Somewhere along the way, his African religion didn't satisfy him. Somewhere along the way, all of his power and all of his money and his social status and his high standing, somewhere along the way, weeks and weeks earlier, this Ethiopian eunuch would have said, Maybe there's something in Jerusalem for me. Candace, do you mind if I take one of the chariots? I'd like to ride several thousand miles up to Jerusalem just to see what's going on there. Now, after he starts to have the spirit move into his heart, he sees in verse 36 this water, and he says, see, here's water. He immediately, interestingly, wants to identify with Christ. Philip shares the faith, and the response of him is, I want to identify with him. That's what baptism does. Uh, this morning, we brought this child into this covenant community, but as an adult, you identify with God. You're saying, I want to be cleansed. I want this to be an outward demonstration of what's happening internally into my heart. And I now want to identify with Christ and with his people. He didn't have anything else in common with Philip. Not his skin color, not his theology, not his heritage, not his food tastes, not his music tastes. Probably not much uh, with his worldview or his politics. But they both loved Jesus. And they decided we're going to identify with Christ together. Here's water. I want this placed on me because I want to declare to everybody that I'm a Christ follower. Let me say this to those of you who are seeking or those of you who are curious. If you go to a Clemson game, and sorry for two Clemson, let's say it's USC. If you go, just keep it balanced. Uh, if you go to a USC game and... Um, and you see a USC fan, you're rooting for USC, and you see a USC fan completely, they're drunk, they're doing all kinds of inappropriate things, uh, completely embarrassing the fan base, right? What do you do? You would never go home and say, I'm never rooting for the Gamecocks again, never again. No, you would bring that guy or that girl in line. You would be embarrassed for them but you would never let that rob you of your first love. If you go to an orchestra and halfway through somebody's cell phone goes off and you're, and you're in this high level orchestra in a black tie event and somebody's over there just snacking on popcorn and looking at their phone, you would never say, I now hate classical music. You'd never say that. You'd be embarrassed for that person. You, you would not like that. You'd maybe say something to them. So if you're a seeker, if you're curious about this, don't let some Christian who you might view as embarrassing rob you of your first love, keep you from falling in love with Christ. We can have those other conversations, but the main issue is what Christ can and will do in your life. And then look at it, it says in verse 36, what prevents me from being baptized? Now let me speak to believers here. 
believers, a lot of us would say, whoa, whoa, this is way too early. Like, we got to go through a communicants class. We need to have some training. We're not sure if this was going to stick. Like, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, this is just all so sudden, all so soon. Well, here's what Matthew Henry, who's not known for being a liberal scholar, says about this. He says, if some hypocrites crowd into the church and afterwards prove a grief and a scandal to us. We must not therefore make the door of admission any straighter than Christ has made it. They'll answer for their apostasy. We don't have to. (laughs) They'll answer for that. We don't have to answer for that. So let me ask you, if you are a seeker, if you are curious, what is keeping you from following Christ this morning, this week? Like, really, what's keeping you from a God who loves you A God who knows you, who knows all of your sin, who knows you not at your best, but knows you at your absolute worst, who will never leave you and forsake you, and who will always walk with you and protect you. What what does keep you from worshiping him rather than yourself? Where are the roadblocks? Honestly, work through that. Now, here's Philip. Let's talk about him, and then we'll close. Philip was an obedient follower. Who was he? Well, he was a deacon. This is not the apostle Philip. Uh, There was a disciple named Philip. That's not him. This is the deacon who was, in Acts chapter 6, appointed to be a deacon. And he was the evangelist. We're going to see him here. Then we're going to see him in Acts chapter 21. He's uh, hanging out in Caesarea Maritime on the coast. That's where he ends up. He's got four daughters who are all prophesying. They're all prophetesses. So four unmarried daughters who are all prophets, and that's the last we see of Philip. But here's three things we see that will help you with your evangelism. Number one, he's obedient to the Great Commission. Look at what it says in verse 26. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go to the south towards this road. It goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. It's a desert place, and he does it. God just tells him, go do this. It's a desert place. There's no QTs down there. There's no supplies. There's absolutely nothing around. But go to this place, and he's obedient. The first thing we see in Philip's life is we have to be obedient to the Great Commission. And our obedience will be uh, connected to the joy of others. Here he is in verse 26, obedient. But look at verse 39. He goes down, but then... The Ethiopian goes away rejoicing. Because of his obedience, the Ethiopian rejoices. Your obedience to what God wants you to do will bring joy in the life of others. And your obedience to what God wants you to do will bring joy in your life as well. One of the first presuppositions that we have to confront at this point is this. Sometimes we assume if I am obedient to what God wants me to do, it won't bring me joy. It will make me miserable. Nowhere do we read that in Scripture. God wants your joy. The reason why he tells us and gives us commands of what to do is so that he might frame us in so that we might have the most amount of joy and bring the most amount of joy to others. And then we see, second, he's sensitive to the Spirit's opportunity. Look at verse 29. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. I preached, if you remember, Uh, two years ago for four months on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes I feel like I should just go back and repeat that whole series uh, because I'm still not sure we've got it yet. That the Holy Spirit lives in us and we live and keep in step with the Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is indwelling, and we can listen to the Spirit. The Spirit actually translates our prayers. The Spirit helps us. The Spirit guides us. The Holy Spirit does all of these beautiful things. It brings us to Christ, convicts us, and encourages us. Here's what Packer says again. The Christian's life in all aspects, intellectual, ethical, devotional, relational, upsurging in worship, and outgoing witness is supernatural. Only the Spirit can initiate it and sustain it. So apart from him, not only will there be no lively believers and no lively congregation, there will be no believers or no congregations at all. And here the Spirit led him. One of the things you can do if you want to, if God's convicting you, I want to be obedient to the Great Commission. I, I want to change this, this area. I, I want to evangelize. I actually want to share my faith with people. If, if you're solid with me on point number one, then point number two, this is all you do. You wake up in the morning and you say, Holy Spirit, make me sensitive to whatever opportunity you put in my path today. Make me sensitive to whoever you bring in my path this week this day, this month, to whoever's hurting, to whatever waitress is crying. I saw, <laughs> I saw a waitress. This will make me tear up. She turned, and she had um, initials and a date on her arm that was um, from December last year. Obviously, somebody died that she knew, I, JDS, whoever that is. And she turned back around, and I said, I know you probably don't want to talk about this, but I'm sorry for your loss. She immediately, I mean, just immediately started crying. I'm a pastor at Mitchell Road. Let me know if I can ever help. That was it. That was the whole opportunity. But pray that morning for an opportunity. There's an opportunity. I don't know if she'll ever show up here. I don't know if she's here today. But if we start to pray for opportunities, that chariot that goes by, the spirit prompts, hey, go up to that chariot. I don't have anything in common with that guy. <laughs> he's, a, he's a rich Ethiopian. Just be sensitive to the opportunity. Go up to the chariot. And then look at what he says. He says, do you know what you're reading? One of the, the best questions that you can ask somebody, I remember I was sharing my faith with a guy, David, a couple months ago, and he said, yeah, I think my, all of life is just keeping my family happy. And I said, well, how's that working out for you? He said, not real well. I said, well, maybe we need a different perspective then, don't we? All we have to do is just kind of ask the questions. And look, this guy is longing for it. Look at what he says in verse 31. How can I know unless somebody guides me? How will I know what the scriptures say? How do I know that there's another way to live unless somebody guides me through it? Again, Packer, there is only one means of evangelism. Namely, the gospel of Christ explained and applied. There is only one agent of evangelism, namely the Lord Jesus. There's only one method of evangelism, a faithful explanation and application of the gospel message. That's it. Not dropping, we're not sending up hot air balloons, dropping tracks across Greenville. It's relational, one-on-one. -on -one. You know somebody, you meet somebody, you sit down with them because you love them. And you say, hey, you want to read the Gospel of John with me? Or how's your life going? Or do you have a place to worship? Or any, anything to start the conversation. That's it. And then willing to state the obvious. And so obedient, 
opportunity and obvious if you need a way to remember this. Look at what he says, verse uh, 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus. He went through the scriptures and tells them the good news. Now, if I woke you up at 3.30 this morning, and I'm not going to, but if, if I did, if I came into your house at 3.30 this morning, this next morning, and I woke you up in the middle of the news and said, tell me the good news. Could you tell me the good news? Could you tell me any good news at all? Or is your mind just filled with anxiety and fear and any number of other things? But if I, if I came to your bedroom and woke you up, tell me the good news of Jesus, could you do it? I like what George Mueller said. He didn't have an easy life. He started a number of orphanages, but this has always stuck with me. He says in 1841, it has pleased the Lord to teach me this truth, the benefit I have not lost for more than 15 years. And the point is this, I saw more clearly than ever that the first and great primary of business, which I ought to attend to every day, let me pause and say, he ran seven to 10 orphanages, hundreds and hundreds of kids. Every day he had to figure out how to get supplies and feed them. So it's not like he didn't have a lot to do. Many souls under his care. But he says, the primary business I have to attend to every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing that I need to be concerned about was not much how much I even serve the Lord or glorify the Lord, but how to get my soul in a happy state. A friend texted me two days ago, and he said, Andy, it's a great day to glorify God. Man, that changed my entire day. Because I was thinking it was a great day to return emails. That's why I was thinking it was a great day for her. I was, I was thinking it was a great day to get some stuff done. That one little text, Andy, it's a great day today to glorify the Lord. To, to wake up and to preach the good news to yourself. To remind yourself of the good news so that when somebody bumps into you in Target, the good news just flows out. I have a God that loves me. I am secure in Christ. My identity is in Christ. These troubles are going to end. This disease is going to end. God's going to wipe every tear from our eye. You can pick any number of things that are good news and fill it into your heart. So if you're a seeker, I want you to believe today. And if you're a believer, I want you to believe too. That God's still at work and God's not done with this church yet. I had a, a little bit of a vision, uh, and I say that not in a biblical sense, on Easter Sunday morning, you know. I've always said I wish every Sunday morning was like Easter Sunday morning. But I looked around the crowd, I saw a lot of people worshiping, and I thought, I don't think God's done with this church. And what would it look like for people to fill these pews, not that look like us, but that are just seeking Jesus together. Different colors, different backgrounds, different understandings of the gospel because sanctification is a thing. Everybody doesn't come in as a finished product. This is not a finishing school. This is a place where you kind of come in and we seek together. People with different questions and different doubts and seeing lives change. That's the whole reason. C.S. Lewis says the church exists for nothing else but to draw men unto Christ and to make them little Christ. If they're not doing that, the church, then all the cathedrals, all the clergy, all the missions, all the sermons, and all the music 
are simply a waste of time. I've got no interest in just being a social club of people that think the same way and are very moral. We want to be the church. We want to be the church that reaches out, that the gates of hell cannot prevail against. That you can assault the gates of hell with a water gun because they're not going to stand up to Christ and his power and his mercy. Let me finish uh, with two quick things. I was sad this week. Uh, you probably heard that story of that family in Rock Hill that was shot. Uh, I knew them, knew all of them. Moved down from the north to Rock Hill, and then not only did I know them from Rock Hill, but knew uh, them from Erskine. They were connected with Erskine, they were ARP. I was ARP for a little while, so I knew the whole clan, all of them. I can't imagine, right? Jeff and Katie losing both their parents and their kids on the same day, which is devastating. Do you see that statement they put out as a family? I'll read it to you. The four Leslie siblings wrote this statement. We're truly in the midst of the unimaginable. The losses we're suffering can't be uttered at this time. We know that there are no answers to satisfy the question why. We're sure of one thing. We do not grieve as those without hope. Our hope is found in the promise of Jesus Christ. And we're enveloped by a peace that surpasses understanding. To that end, our hearts are bent towards forgiveness and peace, towards celebration and unity. We honor all of those involved with this story with prayers and compassion, specifically for the Shook family, the Lewis family, and the Adams family, which is the family of the shooter. An immediate statement of peace and forgiveness to the family of the shooter. As Robert Leslie, Dr. Leslie would say, when peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, it is well with my soul. And if you want to do something for the family, Addie, I mean, Ada and Noah want you to stock food pantries and libraries, and Barbara and Robert would want you to be good stewards of what you're giving, leaving every place a better place than when you got there. What a beautiful statement. Now, why can a family make that statement in such tragic circumstances? Because a generation or two or three, somebody somewhere who will probably never know about until we get to heaven said to somebody, let me tell you the good news about Christ. And they told their kids, and they told their grandkids, and one of them told Dr. Leslie or Barbara, and they followed Christ their entire lives, and they told their kids. And so when that tragedy happens, that's the statement you get. So friends, let me invite you to it. Let me invite you to the feast that is Christ. I'll tell this story. This is a little bit lighter story, but I'll tell this story to close as we come to this feast, uh, just to just to bring us out of it a little bit. Two years ago, I was at the Masters. You knew I was not going to go through all of today without a Masters story, right? Two years ago, I was at the Masters, and I was walking down that main thoroughfare. I've told you this before, in Berkman's Place. You can't get, it's really exclusive. Anything you want is behind that wall right there at Berkman's Place. But you got to be like a CEO of Nike, or you got to be rich or lucky to get in there.
and I was walking down to the security guard for Berkman's place is standing right there, and across the way there was this guy on the other side finishing his beer. He couldn't bring his beer into there. And the security guard yelled out to that guy, hey, what are you doing? He said, I'm finishing my beer, I can't bring it in. And the security guard said to that guy, I know how much that beer costs, and I know how much a ticket into here costs, and I don't know why you would ever sit out there and sip that beer when you have more than anything waiting for you in here. I called him out just across the street, and I looked over thinking, first of all, this is going to be a great sermon illustration no matter what happens. <laughs> and then second of all, how's that guy going to respond? He said, you're right. Dumped out the beer, threw away the cup, walked right through the gate. Why would you spend your life sipping on things in this world that are never going to satisfy you? When there is a feast awaiting you, when you walk through the doors of Christ. In the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray now as we come to communion that you would remind us of this feast that for those of us who are believers, we would take and eat with joy. For those of us who are not believers, that we would seek and think about who you are and who we are. Thank you, Jesus, for your good news. And may we now double down on sharing it naturally, spontaneously. And would you do something in this church that nobody can take credit for but you? We pray in your name. Amen.